Welcome to Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Bug Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. And I'm Adam Grossman. Adam, it's good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you as well. As we often do, Adam and I are taking a little break from the guests and talking to each other. I think it's good to have the ability to catch up, the two of us, and talk about some of the topics that we have covered not only this season, but we'll cover going forward. And importantly, we wanted to hit on a piece that as an offshoot or continued building around the podcast and work that Adam is doing around the Revenue Above Replacement newsletter. So Adam, give us a little view into what you're doing there. Yeah. So obviously this podcast is called the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. We have traditionally, or I have traditionally written a newsletter that was published titled Revenue Above Replacement. It is now moved to the John Wall Street platform. John Wall Street used to be a part of Sports Illustrated and Sportico. And now it started its own content label run by Corey Leff, who is the John Wall Street of John Wall Street. The column runs now every Friday, uh, but it talks about topics that should be of interest to our podcast audience as well. And we're going to cover some of those topics today. But I think the idea is what exactly what Bryce just said is we want to talk about topics of interest to this audience, but also provide other expert opinions and other ways of looking at content and doing in-depth examination both in an audio podcast, but also in a written form. Um, so we can really provide in-depth analysis on topics of interest to industry leaders or people who are aspiring to be industry leaders in the sports business. And Corey has been a guest on this podcast previously, as Adam mentioned, does a great job in covering that intersection of a lot of the things that we often talk about on this podcast or listeners of the podcast are engaged with on a day-to-day basis. Going forward, I think that one of the goals that we'll have is some interplay between your writing and the pieces that you do and and guests that we have on the podcast. Can you talk a little bit about what you have plans or thoughts going forward on some of those things? I think the topics that are in the newsletter can lead to further and more in-depth conversations. So I think one way which the podcast format is definitely well suited for. So we want to be able to seed the ground with a newsletter so we can start with those topics, give people context and give listeners context as we head into the conversation and create a kind of foundation of what the conversation can be about. So we'll sometimes publish the newsletter and then have the podcast come out um, or publish the column and then have the newsletter, or we will do the opposite, right? Where we'll have the podcast and then you'll also be able to look at more detail, more information in the newsletter, and it will supplement what we're doing on the podcast. So you can create a more or have a more condensed version of what we're talking about in the podcast. So it, it really is just a new channel for a novel way for us to analyze the topics in the sports industry that we like to cover, as Bryce was saying on the podcast. And Adam's already done some really great pieces in the newsletter. We kind of do that model of those have already been written and talk about those today because the three that you had done, one was a two-part piece around expert predictions and then another piece around what revenue above replacement or wins above replacement, sort of the derivative of where the name comes from really means. And then the most recent one around secondary fans, which is fascinating. I think you do an amazing job of digging into some of the really granular pieces around what those topics are and what those entail. And I think, again, very relevant for our listeners. But if we go back to that first newsletter that you've written in this new format and talking about those expert predictions, can you give the listeners a synopsis of what that is? And we can dive into that. Yeah, this is something that's been a topic of interest for me for a long time. And I think it's a topic of interest for you as well, Bryce. But I think the idea, one of the things that there's a famous quote that's, as I talk about in the piece, that's attributable to many people, but most one of the most famous people is Yogi Berra. You know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. And I do think the sports industry is notorious for experts, whether you believe either experts, pundits, media members making predictions about 
making predictions about sporting or outcomes of sporting events, or it doesn't have to necessarily be games. It can be like the recent NFL draft or the NCAA tournament. There's a wide range of sports outcomes that people often like to speculate about. And more often than not, even people who make expert predictions are wrong. And that's because it's not, not just because, you know, people are, it's just very, like, it is literally very difficult to predict the future. Obviously, there are sports betting markets where you can bet on the future. And typically, an expectation is if you're able to win something between 51 and 50% of your bets, you would, particularly if you get to the 56% range, you'd be the leading or one of the leading sports bettors in the world. So the idea is that it's just very difficult to know all the different outcomes, it's very difficult to predict injuries or weather or just bad luck. So all those things can factor into analysis. Um, usually that doesn't stop people from being very confident in their predictions or necessarily people will be very quick to point out when they are successful in their predictions, less so particularly from a media perspective when they're not as successful with their predictions. But the idea is there are certain steps. The point of that column was A, to acknowledge that this issue existed, particularly in light of the NCAA tournament. Um, I had it in the article, an article from CBS Sportsline that had 10 expert predictions of the final four, and only one person of the 10 had one correct pick for the final four of the 10. Not even just they picked four teams, they just picked one team. So out of the 40 potential, there was one correct selection. So, and that wasn't just a, no pun intended, pick on those experts. It's just an indication of the larger problem that exists when it comes to expert predictions. And then what are this, you know, the, the article goes on to articulate, which we can sort of talk about steps you can take to help with it from a prediction perspective. I mean, there's whole industries that have, have come up around this. If you just turn on your television and you look at sports punditry or talk radio or any of the shows that you would watch, the prediction part of it is an enormous piece. And you're absolutely right. They're very quick to point out when they're right. But it's very easy to say, well, prediction's hard when you're wrong or not even bring those those things up. I mean, I think even if you look at somebody who's very, very good at this and modeling those things out, somebody like Nate Silver, and now he dabbles in politics and, and sports as well. But if you look back to the 2016 election, they got all of those things wrong and people were banking on his predictions in that. And he well, makes the same point. Yeah, I think that's is a little bit of a misunderstanding from the Nate Silver, only because of all of those pollsters, Nate Silver made it clear that I think it's somewhere between a 17 to 20% chance of winning. He was one of the few people who actually did say that Trump had a non-zero or a, you know, 17 to 20% is not a majority, but it's not a, you know, right. it's certainly a, a scenario that you have to take realistically that he could win. And I think that was something that actually he, you know, you could say like he deserved either more or less credit for that from a 17 to 20% perspective, but you're right. he, he famously published, or one of the books he famously published is called The Signal and the Noise, which is specifically about this expert prediction pro problem. Talk about a little bit in the piece. There's several other books that we referenced. The other notable one that we could talk about here is Super Forecasting, like what do people do who are very good at forecasting? But you're, the point is well taken, right? That there's a lot of different fields, prediction and predictive analytics. I mean, most famously in sports, Moneyball, the idea behind Moneyball is can we find and identify factors that people have gone that have gone unnoticed or people don't typically rely on to make better predictions about player which players we should sign. So Billy Bean, who's the main character in both Moneyball, the book and the movie, he identified a that analytics can help, and b that there were specific factors that people undervalued that were actually predictive uh, or descriptive of winning, and that you if you kind of bet on those factors that you were more likely to win more games. 
and at a, at a lower price point because people didn't identify those as factors. Now, a lot of those advantages that were early identified in money model have gone away over time or because people have become more and more sophisticated and rigorous. But that is the idea of making better predictions is certainly the thesis of why sports organizations invest increasing amounts of money into analytics. The follow-up question that I always have in this, and I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you get asked a lot, is, is that going to stay around? Is there going, always going to be a place in sports, whether that's sports from an evaluation of players or, as we do, we're talking about here, the evaluation of predicting wins. In my view, there's always a place for that in sports. I mean, it's part of the fun in some ways around listening to, okay, I think the, this team is going to win based on these metrics. So I certainly think that it's something that's here to stay. It just continues to evolve like everything else. Exactly. I would say it depends. It sort of depends on what you mean. Do I think like um, people are going to continue watching sports and not necessarily develop like robust player performance models to watch sports because they like watching sports? And yeah, absolutely. Do I think there's what what is happening in particularly on the on field side is or on field or on course or on ice, starting with baseball and then working its way through other sports? It becomes increasingly difficult to find competitive advantages over time. There still are even in baseball ways to look. And again, teams do spend in baseball and other tens of millions of dollars collectively on analytics. But it becomes as people become more aware of the competitive advantages, it increasingly becomes more difficult to find those competitive advantages. Uh, that's kind of it, it's not exactly the same, but somewhat similar to, to the stock market, where you know people will identify potentially inefficiencies in the stock market. But then, if you've identified it, is likely somebody else will identify that, and those quickly can. Not always, but at times can quickly, most of the time can quickly dissipate. So I, do I think the former is def? Do I think both like there will still be room for analytics? Yes. And people making predictions? Absolutely. But part of what makes sports interesting is that, you know, that's why you play the games is there is unpredictability. You could do everything correctly and obviously still get the wrong outcome. So what analytics in general is designed to do and like money ball or otherwise is are we putting ourselves in the best position to be successful you know one way of looking at it is like if you're only looking at it there are times where as a golfer you could you know on a par three you could get a ball closer to the hole than a professional golfer you know if you're only having one six it's one swing at a you know if you're only playing one hole and you have one swing could you do better than a professional golfer the probability says the professional golfer is more likely to get it closer to the hole but you certainly on a one time could you know, even if it's 10% of the time or less, you could certainly do better than a professional golfer on one hole. Professional golfers are professional golfers because they consistently will do better than you over not just 18 holes, but every professional event they ever play in. So I do think unpredictability in a single event will definitely occur and definitely is one of the most compelling things about sports. Over time, you know, unpredictability tends to regress to the mean, so to speak, and becomes easier to systematically create ways of predicting the future. Not again, it's not easy. It's definitely easier. One thing listeners of this podcast will see as a common theme, and it's one thing that's permeated a lot of the discussion in both of our lives these days is the use of AI in some of these models and generative yep. AI. You even mentioned in the piece, your discussion with Adam Goldberg from OpenAI around these pieces. Now, I know that large language models are a little different in the sense that it's not spitting out quote unquote predictions based on certain things, but how do you see the role of AI in, in well, these predictions and the models? In large language models, that actually is what it is doing essentially. It is basically training, you're using large data sets in OpenAI's case, you know, scraping information as much information as almost it possibly can from the internet to 
try to build these models to say when people tend to say this is the outcome. So it's very, as you can, I guess you can call it micro predictions to a certain degree, but it's that is what it is trying to do. So that was the point is like, if you can build systematically and build algorithms that systematically say when people ask these types of questions, these are the most likely types of responses. And usually some, I think uh, typically in, in large language models, it's using a form of reinforcement learning. So you train the system on and it, it keeps trying to reduce the error as much as possible so that when it goes through a certain sequence, it will understand this is, you know, when it, it, it's, we can go to a certain degree into large language mo- models or, you know, neural networks and layers and deep convolutional neural networks and all that kind of stuff. But the main thing is that it is iterative, right? It continues to learn as it gets larger and larger training sets to the point where it hopefully becomes, while it can continue to get better, it gets you know, marginally better over time versus like when you get started, it keeps getting better and better. So that's why when you type in a prompt, the system doesn't necessarily know you typed in like what what is Moneyball, but it takes those sequences of letters and words together and says, oh, money based on these types of questions that I've received in the past, this is the type of answer that this person is looking for and predicting the response or kind of generating the response based on the input. So that's kind of how that works. So it is like that is that was part of the reason to include that in the piece is that it's what's just trying to, you know, it's trying to basically say, based on this, I predict or I think you want this response. And if you play with any of those tools, you can certainly see the way that you as the human prompt and interact with those models certainly influences the output of that. And I think as we as humans continue to get better with the prompts and those models continue to get better, as you mentioned, with the humans being in that loop in some way, they'll continue to get better and better in that. And you're right, it is a very good use case for prediction in this sense, because it can take more data that than the human can in a faster time frame and spit those prediction pieces out. So it, there are many, many, many topics that we could talk about from an AI and generative AI perspective and how those are going to continue to impact not only the portions that you talked about in that piece, but the sports world in general and us as humans. But I think as we sort of look at the other pieces that you had written up into this point, one that that I found endlessly fascinating, partially because of the name of the podcast, but partially because of of all the work that you have done is really revenue above replacement is a derivative or take on the metric, the wins above replacement metric. And I guess for listeners, can you sort of explain two things? One, what wins above replacement really looks to achieve and looks to outline and then sort of how we got from that jump to the revenue above replacement piece and all the things that were in the article that you wrote. Yeah, I mean, this, as you kind of just articulated, that was part of the reason I broke it into two pieces is because I, I did want to make sure people understood what wins above replacement meant in the first place and then transition into re- revenue above replacement. So the core, you know, when you're talking about money ball or sports analytics, the most commonly used or thought of metric most people would consider is wins above replacement. So the idea is that, when you're paying for player performance, when you're talking about a team that's looking to sign a player, a team, in theory, you would say, well, how does this player help my team win a game, right? Or win an event or win a competition. In reality, what what you are paying for is that there is a certain level of performance that almost any team can sign a player for at a minimal level. So think of when you're talking about a baseball team, baseball teams have access to minor league players who they can almost always get a triple A level player who is an extremely good baseball player. If you're a triple A professional or triple A AA or double A professional baseball player, that means you are in the top, you know, one 
tenth or whatever, one tenth or one tenth of one percent or something like that. So you're still very good. You're just not as good as a major league baseball player and or a you know a good baseball a good major league baseball player, an all-star level baseball player, a all pro level baseball player or an MVP kind of baseball player. So there's certain in, levels of in those though, Adam, is there, is there some level of subjectivity into what that baseline is? Meaning what is the average? What is a, an all-star or does the person that is evaluating these metrics have to say, for me, this is the baseline of what an average player is or what a, an all-star yeah. player is and so on. It's a very good question. So uh, you're kind of hitting on a point that what's the difference between a continuous versus a discrete variable. A continuous means like in in this context or what we define it as how many wins can you contribute is the number of wins. So it could be like zero, one, two, three, four, five, six. You don't put a label on it. It just it goes from it can go from negative. Let's say negative typically doesn't go more than like negative three or four, negative three or four wins to positive in baseball typically. 10 or 11 wins is the upper end. So Shohei Otani in our model, I think I may mention the article was like 10.5 wins in our model. So, but that's like the upper end is how many wins they can contribute over a replacement player. So defining those, what you did. So fan graphs in particular, as I said, typically all-star level players are two to four wins or, you know, MVPs are typically in this essentially in the five to 10 win range, really good players are in the four to six range. So there are bands that you could use, but that's more of a discrete. That's when you label it as this player is an all-star or this player is this, but that's a more subjective thing. Like what you define is that you can go back and say all-star players, players who were selected as all-stars typically contribute these many wins. But going back to the original question of like, you should perform a major league player who makes more than the minimum salary shouldn't be contributing to winning above a triple a level player so the baseline for all a replacement level player is not an average player it is what is the minimum performing player and how does that player compare to a, a minimum level of performance so that is the key idea inside of the wins above replacement and what we have found and others before us and after us have found are the factors that do all, to say like what actually are the factors that have a correlation with winning. We have found those factors to be a version of hitting, pitching, fielding, and base running are the main factors that explain the most amount of variance in winning or have the strongest correlation to winning. Typically with models, both in wins and above replacement and otherwise, you want to try to find the the fewest number of variables that can explain the most amount of winning. So we've identified those four specifically as the variables that most contribute or have the strongest association with winning. And you mentioned in the piece, you talked about fan graphs and that the prediction that they had recently, they projected that teams pay somewhere between 6.5 and $8.5 million more per win with the best players making on the higher end of that scale. And I think that that puts a number to it in the sense of the value of those wins above that level of replacement player and the, the dollar amounts that, that go into those things. Well, that, yes, Sort, I would say yes, but as a caveat, that is the actual definite the revenue above replacement. So, what their the metric that is typically used, if you want to say typical in this context, whether it's fan graphs or baseball references, players get paid X dollars for their on field performance. What revenue above replacement, the goal is of revenue above replacement is to say, well, players do not just contribute to revenue generation just from their on field performance. 
So to look at it only in that context is potentially to undervalue or not correctly value player contributions to a team's actual revenue. So the idea is that if you were in any other business outside of sports, you wouldn't look at one factor that has some, but not necessarily a, the, the only or substantial or strong correlation to revenue generation. Essentially, people, you know, there's definitely, it definitely does seem like that there is at least a weak correlation between winning and revenue generation. But there are other factors that we've identified that we holistically call star power is that essentially fans want to see stars and those star those players that are stars in the ways that we define stars that is more consistent over time that once people are stars they tend to remain stars or close to their star power throughout their career even if they're not performing well on the field or on the ice or on the court and also that star power does have collectively those variables typically do have a stronger correlation, a more substantial relationship to winning. Now, some of that, again, it's you, you do become a star in, in part because you, oh, many times in part because you are performing well, but that doesn't mean that's the only thing that could make you a star. So that's the idea is that with revenue above replacement, similarly to wins above replacement, a replacement level player should contribute a certain level of performance on those star power. And then if you're performing above at a certain, in our definition, a certain cost, then that's added value that you are driving to the organization. So the reason I bring that up is like, you could say that, well, win is worth this amount, which is true from a market value of wins. If you only looked at on-field performance, the idea is that that is an kind of like similarly like Moneyball is saying like, well, people didn't look at it the way that we think is actually what is driving wins. My argument is, well, if you apply a similar concept to the business side of sports, you are not necessarily looking at it correctly. And there's an inefficiency potentially in the market and the way that players are valued. There's the famous line in the movie, you don't want to buy wins, you want to buy runs. And it mentions as an archaic way of looking at our medieval way of looking at evaluating baseball teams. I think it's important to mention though, it's a good parlay into the second part, the two-part series around wins above replacement, revenue above, above replacement. Important to point out that revenue above replacement is a metric that you created, I think probably in 2016 or so, that again goes to more around the fact that athletes were not being valued like other employees and specifically their perceived value was largely based on on-the-field contributions like you just said, not the all the other pieces that go around that. And so... Can you talk a little bit more about how you use revenue above replacement in a practical sense? I think that for some of us that love sports, we make sense of the wins above replacement and sort of the player evaluation piece. But in a business setting, how is revenue above replacement used and and where is it seen to be the most valuable? Yeah, before I do that, I do want to, the part that you mentioned about wins, not buying wins, buying runs. The Mm -hmm. reason I'm talking about that is it actually, I think, builds into what you're saying about like, how do you make this more practical? So the main concept when people say in in that is pitchers, you know, the most commonly seen metric is a pitcher's one loss record. Well, a pitcher doesn't, A, doesn't now, especially with the introduction of the designated hitter in the NL, does not hit, right? So they're only focused on defense. A pitcher also doesn't field. So a better fielding pitch, you know, teams with a better fielding could help pitchers win. So if you tried to, the same pitcher might have a different win-loss record depending on how a team fields or depending on how 
a team performs offensively of which they have that pitcher has no control. So what you, what all sports are, particularly team sports is maximizing point differential, run differential, goal differential. You are more likely to win if you have a larger differential between the amount of runs, points, et cetera, that you score versus the other, other team score. So either you want to maximize the amount, you both want to maximize the runs, points, et cetera, you score and minimize the runs points that the other team scores. So that's what you're buying. If you buy, that's what I would say. If you, over time, if you maximize differential, you are more likely to win more games. So that's the reason I bring that up is that you set similar in a business context. In a business context, if you're talking about probability or you're talking about profitability, there's only two components of profitability. It's revenue and cost. It's either, and you either want to, you want to maximize your revenues and you want to minimize your costs. You could potentially do one or the other or both, but that is how you maximize profitability. It's the same thing with run differential. So from a revenue above replacement is you may find somebody who, whether it's a player or a partnership opportunity or tickets or however you want to think of it, it is, it's not just that something costs a lot of money or something generates a lot of revenue. It is if you're focused on profitability, which is obviously the core business metric, similar to like winning in, in on-field, you want to think about it as how does this generate, how does something I am doing maximize profitability? And it could be, again, that you're looking at maximizing revenue generation, in particular, when you're talking about revenue generation, there is only two ways to generate revenue, which is increasing the volume of goods sold or increasing the price of those goods. Now, there's many different ways to do that, but one thing people often think about is, well, I have to charge the lowest price possible or I want the lowest price possible. And that's not necessarily true, right? If you can figure out ways that people are going to increase their value, then you can increase the price because they're getting more value. So those are ideas like similar kind of, if you use a kind of a similar frame and think about, well, wins based off differential, business is based off differential. I need to figure out how I maximize that differential in order to maximize my success in business. So let's linger on that for a second, because we're seeing a little bit of this in the stock market today, right? Look at the tech companies that are turning in huge earnings, but the growth is a little bit slow. But the reason those earnings are coming in so much higher is they've reduced a bunch of costs. They've gotten rid of headcount and gotten a little leaner. And that gets to the point that you're just talking about is there's two levers in that from a business perspective, reducing costs or growing that revenue. And I think that that's important to talk about in the sense of the interplay between the two. If the ultimate right. goal here is to, to maximize that revenue, it, there is not just, hey, we got to cut cost or, hey, we have to increase the price of a product or whatever it may be. It's the balance of the, the pulling of those levers and when you do those things strategically. Yeah. And also it does... This is one thing that happens. And, you know, you mentioned politics a little bit at the beginning and like kind of understanding one of the things that is a very common political trope is that government should run more like businesses. Typically, when people use that trope, it is we have to cut costs. Well, that is not true. The best businesses do exactly what you're saying. A lot of best businesses make substantial investments in order to grow revenue over time and understand, you know, the most common or one common example is Apple you know, particularly in previous, you know, when Steve Jobs was running the company, they made a big bet on the iPhone. And then, you know, and it costs a lot of money and time and energy. So there's a significant cost structure there. But over time, because they made the investment, they were able to grow their revenues and grow it because and still command a large portion, even today, 
of the smartphone profitability market because they create a demand and a higher willingness to pay for a product. And because they create a higher willingness to pay, they were able to charge a higher price point, which able, you know, led to higher revenues that would not have existed without making investments. So that's something to think about is your goal is to maximize when you're talking about in this context, like we need government to, it's to max, you know, government has different goals. Government shouldn't, you know, I, I believe personally does not need to necessarily run like a business, but if you're going to think of it like that, you have to think of it in terms of both levers. And again, I think from a, whether it's winning, whether it's player valuations, whether it's secondary fans, the topic we'll talk about it is what can it do on both sides? What is the revenue? What is the cost? What is the profitability? And thinking about all of those things in in concert, similar to what you're saying about the earnings perspective, you could say earnings and profitability certainly are good, and it's not—it's particularly in the current economic environment, these companies are doing a good job, you know, or potentially doing a good job, even if that means eliminating jobs in order to maximize profitability. But that could have long-term implications, right? If you're eliminating jobs or you're losing talent, you know, that could over time be a short-term efficiency for a long-term problem from a profitability perspective, particularly if you're cutting talent or cutting people who, you know, hopefully you're making over these companies from their, you know, purely from an economic perspective are identifying the correct people to lay off in ways that won't have a substantial impact over time of their profitability, because that's what you're saying. You may be reducing costs, but if you end up reducing the volume of goods sold, the price of your goods sold, you're losing talent, that could ultimately have a net negative effect on the business. It's fascinating to see. Every week we talk from this podcast, we try to bring guests on that that fit this sort of model. And I think what's really interesting is to sit here and talk about really what that metric is and why you came to that conclusion. And now you can see the logical jump from wins above replacement, but it really is cool how it pulls in those pieces from a business side that are applied to sports. If you look at some of the other pieces that you had written, building on that theme, the, the piece around data-driven case against women's sports investment. And I think it's a, a really interesting piece because there's been so much in the news from a sports perspective around the growth of women's sports. And even just anecdotal evidence for myself, I watched probably more of the women's Final Four than I did of the men's, partly because it was more interesting, partly because of the star power. And I think that it's great to see that continued growth. But if you talk more about this piece and what you dug into there, I think, again, builds on what we've been talking about previously. Yeah, the headline of the piece is a mouthful. It's the data-driven case <laughs> against the data-driven case against women's sports investment. So typically the most common, if you're going to say accepted, the commonly accepted criticism of women's sports and why women athletes or women's sports does not generate the revenue, the interest, and the engagement is that you know people are just voting with their dollars, with their time, and with their feet. And that happened, my speaking of anecdotal, which I I guess I somewhat have a bias against given my background, but my uncle emailed me at our, or emailed me saying that Bob Costas was trying to make an argument about why Brittany Griner shouldn't have played professional basketball in Russia. He was saying, you know, A, that what, you know, she may only only make 200,000 or, you know, WNBA players make, typically star players make up between 150 to $200,000 a year. And that the reason they do that is because women's basketball players make, or the WNBA makes far less money than the NBA. And that's one reason. And also like that is 150 to $200,000 is enough money to sustain a family. You know, it's more money than the average person makes. So there's several flaws with that argument, but the big one is the WNBA rights, similarly to the NCAA women's rights are arguably undervalued given the uh, viewership that exists. And that is actually to your 
you know, one of the reasons we I call the newsletter revenue above replacement is to find potential inefficiencies or find areas that are underinvested because those are areas where you can get more of a bang for your buck, so to speak. The WNBA currently is, I think their rights are up for renewal after this season, similarly to the NWSL, similar to the women's NCAA tournament. Those, you know, given the metrics and given the, the media rights deals that have been commanded for male sports for a similar level of performance are significantly and substantially undervalued. And like the point is not that their people are voting with their interests, is that the people are voting that the historical performance when those deals were sold are not reflective of what the performance is now and argue probably what the performance will be in the future. And because those rights are so undervalued and on a go forward basis, there will be a most likely an influx of money into women's sports. We use, or I use the women's cricket media rights auction for the India Premier League as an example. Those rights sold for in the, I believe, over a hundred million dollars and no women's league in the United States currently commands $100 million in annual average annual value for those media rights. So I think those revenues are coming. And to make an economic like to make an economic argument against women's sports typically is based off of predetermined or historic data that's no longer factual or accurate. And that was what the piece was saying. You know, there's particularly in the past three years, but arguably longer. There's been a consistent theme of the data is saying women's sports is undervalued. So that argument that women don't drive the interest or the same level of interest or engagement, it may be that it will never get to the most popular, but there's certainly the gap that exists is not as great as it once was. And particularly uh, college basketball, there's a significant and substantial closing of the gap from a ratings, from a social, you know, from a variety of different metrics that would suggest that the, the men's rights are about you know somewhere between 800 I believe 100 800 million to 1 billion dollars in annual you know average annual value all the other sports combined inclusive of the NCAA right now with ESPN I think I mentioned the piece but I think it's somewhere between 35 and 40 million dollars per year combined including women's sports and women's sports as you said had very similar or definitely this year the NCAA tournament had the closest ratings that it ever has had from a women's and men's perspective. So the idea that there would be a, a minimum of, let's say, $765 million a year gap doesn't make sense from a revenue perspective. And that is an actual substantial opportunity. And if we bring it back to the tech piece that you and I both know well, and we were just talking about one of the things that we're always looking for in tech is that growth and that growth potential. And year yeah. over year, those three games, I think you had in the piece that year over year, 66% increase from a viewership perspective in the final four. I mean, yep. right there is your metric around how that's undervalued. And as you said, in the go forward basis, that should certainly be a much harder look at the valuation of those rights, which then has a trickle down effect of when those media rights deals are larger, the money becomes larger for those athletes. I think the other interesting thing you touched on the piece a little bit was the NIL portion. And yep. if you look, and we've had lots of conversations on this podcast, people like Brad Bauer from Northwestern or Adam Cook from, yep. from Campus Inc., some of the highest paid NIL athletes and the ones that drive the most engagement are female athletes. And I think part of the reason for that is they're very good at an ingrained fan base that they drive those things to. And so that brings in another level of valuation that we traditionally didn't look at. Yeah, and I think it's just... Yes, definitely. I mean, it's also right that even on the metrics where men and women, if you were to say NIL is obviously a new 
uh, space, but you're going to say like traditional social media metrics, particularly impressions, engagements, and, and sentiment scores, you do see men's, not always, but there definitely are several instances of where female athletes perform as well, if not better than male athletes, even star male athletes. So that's something that we wanted to highlight is that those metrics are showing that male athletes maybe at times command significant portion of the dollars. Now, star female athletes and star male athletes are often more frequently getting or receiving similar values, but that's still not the case even at the star level and certainly at the non-star level and consistently across sports, you know, men's basketball can outperform or men's sports outperform women's sports. So that's something that, again, there's inefficiencies in the market. Again, going back to the revenue above replacement and why I call the column revenue above replacement, the idea doesn't just have to be for player valuations. It's the idea of where can we find inefficiencies? Can we create better ways or what I would perceive to be and what I think you also would perceive to be better ways, more effective ways, more efficient ways? Can we think about the industry differently? And if we can think about the industry differently, it creates opportunities, particularly for students, but anybody who's operating in the industry to a enter the sports industry, but b achieve success because you're thinking about things differently. And what we would say is differently, potentially systematically and in ways that can drive immediate or, or drive tangible impact to the organizations of which people work for. And sports is such a great place to do that because we often get mired in this, well, this is how it's been done. Sports trades on sometimes that tradition, that ingrained, yeah. this is how it's been, and all of those things that are really great about sports, but as we've talked about, also present opportunities because of some of those inefficiencies that that tradition or that how we've traditionally viewed those things have created. And so it's an enormous opportunity, not only for listeners of this podcast, people like you and I that talk about and do these things on a day-to-day basis, but organizations and teams and media rights holders, because there is, as we talked about in the piece and we talked about here, an undervaluing of those sports and the media rights that go along with them. But I think it's a good logical extension to the most recent piece that you have written around secondary fans and how they should be a primary consideration. I love this article in the sense that I think of secondary fans, you can kind of think of this as a multifaceted definition in some ways, but how you sort of talk about this as someone who primarily roots for a different team may have a soft spot for a certain team that may be playing on television. So can you sort of build on what your thought around secondary fans was and why there should be more of a consideration for those? Yeah. And I, I would say it's definitely my thought, but I did kind of use the Kansas city chiefs as an example, as a team that had kind of pioneered or was thinking about this concept, particularly in light of the NFL draft. So the NFL draft, when this podcast is released, it, it had occurred the week previously Kansas City obviously is in a unique position in the fact that the team has achieved substantial on-field success at the MVP and Patrick Mahomes. It thought it was a, a opportunity and time to say, well, there's going to be there's a large market of fans and potential fans who have, as you were saying, a primary rooting interest. Let's, for the sake of simplicity, we'll use an NFL team, but let's say. Again, it, it just purely, this is not to say this is what is happening, but as a representative example, the Houston Texans, you know, let's say a Houston Texans fan or, a, you know, as for this season, potentially a Chicago Bears fan, you know, those fans, those teams were having some on-field troubles. This may be a time where they would test out or look to a different team potentially to say, well, my team isn't necessarily going to be as competitive on the field or there are storylines that I, you know, that there aren't the compelling stars or compelling players or compelling themes that I can be engaged with. I'm open to potentially looking at a, a second team as a rooting interest. It doesn't have to necessarily just be because your team's not doing well. Your team could be doing well. And also, like I like Patrick Mahomes or I like Andy Reid. But also the idea of 
not necessarily relying on winning, but saying one of the things that I mentioned in the piece is, you know, particularly in the age of digital tickets and or social media, you can see that fans of a certain team don't always live in that what's called either demographic market area, demographic uh, or DMA or or in a specific geography that there's a, a potential you know, a lot of fans live all over the world, but also fans in your, you know, like you might, the reason to bring that up is, you know, there might be people who are living in a specific geography who aren't originally fans of those teams, but only come to games to see their home team or their favorite team play. And that's an opportunity to engage them with your audience. So it doesn't have to be reliant on winning. It could be reliant on geography. It could be reliant on star power. It could be reliant on when games are occurring or how they're occurring, or there's a family member who's a fan of one team, but a different family member is a fan of a different team. So the idea is that there's this untapped secondary fan that teams don't traditionally target to because they're mostly interested in the primary fan, when arguably the secondary fan is what we would consider a marginal fan. A marginal fan is somebody who can be influenced by marketing or engage, you know, fan engagement to potentially be, you know, change their behavior. In this case, to become a fan of a team and, you know, either buy tickets or consume partnership activations or watch games on television or participate in events. And those are things that teams and organizations don't typically focus on. And this article really struck me because in our modern sports fandom and how those things have evolved, that level of rooting interest has changed substantially, meaning that yep. it's no longer, I grew up in this city, I'm a fan of this team, because exactly. of the ability to reach people on social media, or even things like fantasy sports, where if you look at younger generations who played yep. fantasy sports their entire lives, they often root for the individual player because they've had them on their fantasy team and they've been their keeper for multiple years. It's a really important thing to think about because that traditional view, back to what we were saying earlier, sports is a place where we think about those traditional tropes that we've used for so long, but today... They're very different because I can say that I'm certainly a secondary fan. A good example of this is I have a soft spot for the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm not a Philadelphia yep. Eagles fan, but one of my good friends, her best friend is married to the head coach. And so for me, I really wanted to see the Eagles do well, but I have no connection to Philadelphia in any way. And I think that's a really important point around capturing those fans. But I guess the question that always brings up for me is how do you identify those? How do you identify the secondary fan of a Patrick Mahomes and by extension, the Kansas City Chiefs, or in my case, the Philadelphia Eagles. Because when you talk about DMAs, it's really easy to say Bryce lives in this demographic market area, or it's really easy to say he's purchased these things in the past tickets to these games. Is there a way to drill into who those secondary fans are and how to capture them? Yeah, that that's what I was... I don't know if I totally articulated that well, but that was what I was trying to say is in the piece, but also like what we were just talking about is there could be a, a secondary fan opportunity could be a fan that only attends, you know, like if you're, like you were saying, you're an Eagles fan, you used to live in Chicago, you would only attend the Eagles and Bears game. So it's more likely you're an Eagles fan versus a Bears fan, but that is an opportunity to say, well, this person is coming to our game. They are interacting with our content. They do live in the same area that we live in. That's a potential secondary fan. The, another thing is using social media and geographic. There are definitely third parties. We use this at Excel analytics, but you can look at with our data partners, the geography of people who are, are have posts about your team and your organization. It, obviously, most likely people who are primary fans are the most likely people to engage in social media about that, but that's not always the case. And it could be that those fans are in your 
DMA and talking about your team, but are not necessarily your fans or somebody you haven't reached out to before, but they also could be somebody to target. So the idea is that data in particular can lead you. And, and that's something you want to do systematically. Is there a systematic infrastructure or systematic way of looking for secondary fans? Not all, not everybody who fits those criteria that I just mentioned, or is some, you know, obviously his best friend is the coach of the team or you know, that was the coach of the team. That's not always going to be the case, but the idea is that you can look at you know, social, what are called social graphs or networks, or, you know, you could try to create user profiles of secondary fans using data, using technology in order to create that. And you can use first party data, like your own data that says, oh, this person only buys certain tickets for certain thing, you know, certain games. This person only buys tickets for, or this person only comes to certain events. And those events happen to be around when player X or Y or Z is in town. You could look at their, again, where social media content where people are so posting social media content and you could look at you can look at the potentially the networks or networks of people and say like well this person has this network across you know they're an avid fan they have this network this if they're connected to an avid fan or somebody we have identified as an avid fan are they more likely to be a secondary fan because they're connected to an avid fan of that team and building out kind of social graphs that kind of build out these networks and these nodes and these networks to say, this person is a super fan, the super fan is connected to these people. These people are then more likely to be secondary fans because they're connected to a super fan. That would be another area to to look at. And the concept of fandom has really shifted in that sense, yep. because I think us as sports fans have those teams that we certainly follow more holistically, but the sports landscape has shifted to be much more around following individual players or moving them around is the nature yeah. of free agency, but also the nature of how technology works today and the up to the minute real time piece of this. I think Adam, these pieces. So tell us about, they, they come out every Friday and you write them every Friday. Is that yep. correct? Yeah. And I do before we, and I do want to say the fantasy and sports betting, which you mentioned mm. are a good, another good way of looking at it, right? If your mm. fantasy team, if your fantasy team has those players, that's a potential area where you could be a secondary fan, right? I'm used to following this team because I have players or I have a vested interest. Like you mentioned with sports betting, similarly, like if I'm betting or if I have information that it says that I'm betting on these teams or there's more bets on these teams, you know, that's another good data point to say I'm you know, invested, literally invested in these players and these outcomes, I could be more likely to become a fan of those teams. So the, the reason I bring that up, that is a good thing. We will talk about my next column that's coming out, uh, likely to be coming out when this podcast is released is on sports betting, a different type of uh, focus. But yes, they do come out every Friday and it, it is to explore topics like the ones we just talked about, obviously. But, you know, I think ones we will continue to talk about on this podcast. And how can listeners get access to those? I subscribe to them in multiple means through LinkedIn and directly through John Wall Street. But but how can the rest of the listeners find that content on a weekly basis? Yeah, easiest thing is, like you said, you can join the John Wall Street listserv, essentially, or you can sign up. You can put your email in. It The content for the John Wall Street news columns and newsletters comes out every day, Monday through Friday. I personally, you know, I'm in charge of the Friday column. Um, and then I post the columns on on. Uh, LinkedIn as well. So if you follow a revenue above replacement on LinkedIn, you'll be able to get the access to the columns there. But I would highly recommend following, subscribing to the Wall Street newsletter because it does talk about these types of topics that if you're interested in this podcast, you will certainly be interested in, in the column more generally. And I can second that that recommendation because as, as Adam said, I think there's a ton of great content that Corey does. And across the board at John Wall Street, I think there's a ton of great content that is relevant to not only the things we talk about on the podcast, but that our listeners are interested in. And it's, it's really engaging content that makes you think about, oh, I didn't think about these connections. So it's a great place to dig for that information. So Adam, it 
always great to catch up. I follow your writing back to the days when you were in your own company and the blog six pieces and always really interesting pieces there. And it's cool to see you get the opportunity to write again. So we will continue to follow that. And I'm excited as we look forward to the rest of this season, some exciting guests coming up and not only with coupling those with some of the columns that you write, but outside of that, some exciting guests that we have coming in the next few weeks. Yeah, well, I really appreciate what you said about the columns in my writing, but I do want to point out, again, there have been some great guests, great interviews by Bryce, and there's will continue to be great interviews by Bryce, by Austin, by myself. And we're looking forward to sharing that, like you said, both about the potentially about the columns, but about topics of interest outside of what we'll be covering in those Friday columns. Yeah, thank you so much, Adam. And for everybody, we'll be back again next week. Pick up the interviews again. We appreciate all the listeners. And so, Adam, I'll catch up with you again soon. Yeah, great to talk to you.